We're going to see tonight the actual beginning of uh, Solomon's reign as we continue our march through the book of Kings. Uh, Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment, in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, As David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, And I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son And he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son that I had born. The other woman said, No, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, No, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. 
The king said, this one says, my, my son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, no, your son is dead mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. You know, with Sunday uh, approaching, we're nearing the end of football season. Uh, one year at the Super Bowl leading up to it, it was advertised that uh, the opening week of the NFL season would be an important one for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And in the pregame show, fans were able to watch the heart-wrenching and touching story of a young lady by the name of Anna. She was 13 years old. She was from Wisconsin. And she was in a battle for her life. And uh, she'd also been the recipient of a new heart. Now, Anna had a wish to meet the Green Bay Packers. She was able to attend one of their practice sessions, and they rolled the red carpet out for Anna. Uh, they gave her her own locker and jersey, and she took the practice field with Mike McCarthy, the coach at the time, and she posed for a Lambeau leap, and she enjoyed, uh, enjoyed a meal with all of her favorite players. She got her wish. I want to ask you tonight, if you could wish for anything, what would it be? What would you wish for? Well, in this chapter, we're going to see what Solomon wished for. Now, this chapter, obviously, we continue to see the, the beginning of the reign of King Saul. He was the third king, of course. You know, Saul, and then David, and now Solomon. And he would have reigned in Jerusalem from about 971 to about 931 B.C. Now, he is not recorded as having led any military campaigns, but he was responsible for consolidating the territory acquired by his father, and, and he built a powerful army. Uh, Solomon is responsible in part for what is referred to as the Golden Age of Israel. Now, you remember the Lord Jesus spoke of the wisdom of Solomon and the glory of Solomon. So here we are. We're going into the golden age of Israel before the kingdom divided. And yet, while Solomon made a great start and he had many wonderful moments in his reign, I think we would have to judge that his overall record would be a record of failure. Uh, he married 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, many of them he 
he acquired in marriage alliances with other kings that he was an ally with. That was fairly common practice back then. Kings and leaders would marry off their daughters to other kings to make alliances. And so instead of trusting in the Lord, Solomon trusted in other kings and kingdoms. He trusted in human alliances. He, he trusted in political deals that he could make. And while this certainly made Israel more powerful than it had ever been, we see in the long run that Solomon's heart was taken away from God because his foreign wives led him into idolatry. And also, just in general, idolatry in the land was not abolished. And then he had oppressive policies towards the northern tribes, what would later become the, the, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes up north. His policies were hard on them, and, and after his death, you know, they rebelled. They rebelled to, against uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And that would result, obviously, in the kingdom being divided. And so we're going to see a couple of big lessons from Solomon's reign. The first lesson, I think, is, is the danger of a divided heart. You know, it's, as Christ said, you can't serve God and money. And I think Solomon failed because he tried to do both. I think a second danger in Solomon is that while he made a good start, he didn't make a good finish. You could contrast him with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 when, he told, when he's passing the baton to Timothy. He said, Timothy, you've got to run with, with this gospel baton now and I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. He knew that his time of death, his time of execution was at hand and he finished well. Solomon didn't finish well. Even Solomon himself would later write in the book of Ecclesiastes that the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And so, you know, I see in the life of Solomon that it's, his life is a real dichotomy, isn't it? He was wise. He did a lot of great things. I mean, just look at the book of Proverbs and we're told that people from all over the world would come to hear Solomon's wisdom and yet, Solomon would turn right around and put his trust in men. Real dichotomy. You know, I'm not sure anybody in the Bible had any more potential than Solomon, and yet he seems to be a man who didn't capitalize on his potential. But tonight, we, again, we're going to see that he made a good start. But what you're going to see in chapter 3 is even though it's a record of him making a good start, you're going, to, you're going to see some subtle little clues in this chapter that already there's some problems. It's like we're, it's being hinted at already. Already the seeds of destruction are being sown. What I want you to see with me, first of all, tonight is a double-minded king. Verses 1 to 4 again. A double-minded king. Uh, the chapter opens up, and as it opens up, right away we are confronted with a disappointment over Solomon. 
What's he doing here? He's making an alliance. He's marrying uh, a daughter of an Egyptian ruler. Uh, it, it's tragic. You know, God warned his people that they weren't to run down to Egypt. They, they weren't to trust in the riches or the power of Egypt. I mean, after all, God had, uh, uh, the Egyptians had held Israel in bondage for over 400 years, and God had delivered them out of Egypt. No, no. And we're going to see that in a moment. Uh, so they, you know, here they were, had been in bondage uh, to Egyptians. They'd been delivered out of the hand of, of the Egyptians. And here they are getting into trouble periodically. And who are they running to? Egypt. <clears throat> even Abram, as we're going to see this, this coming week in church, even Abram ran down to Egypt during a famine, right? Now, we're going to see that he had to come running back with his tail tucked between his legs. That didn't go so well for him down there. But here's Solomon making an alliance with, with Pharaoh. Now, what this shows on the positive side, I think, is the international prominence that Solomon and Israel were gaining. It also probably shows Egypt uh, entering into a time of weakness. Now, the, the Pharaoh in question was probably Simon who was Pharaoh from 978 to 959 B.C., and he was, he was one of the last kings of the relatively weak 21st dynasty. Now, such a marriage alliance like this had special significance because earlier Egyptian dynasties had refused to give their daughters in marriage to live outside of the land. Pharaohs would take daughters of others, but they would not give their own daughters. And so here in verse 1, we see sort of a reversal of that going on, don't we? A reversal of fortunes between Israel and, and Egypt. It also shows that Solomon had become probably a force to reckon with in international politics. But it also shows disobedience on the part of Solomon. Because if you were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and specifically verse 3, they weren't to intermarry. They especially weren't to intermarry with other nations. That was forbidden. Uh, you know, in the New Testament, though, we find the same standard for Christians, don't we? What's 1 Corinthians 6 say? Not to be unequally yoked. Now, what if two unbelievers marry and one of them becomes a Christian? Is the Christian then to divorce the unbeliever? No. Because there in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul goes on to discuss that, that hopefully the believer will have a sanctifying influence on the marriage and the home. Uh, but the Bible in both, both Testaments, Old and New Testament, says that believers aren't to up front knowingly marry an unbeliever. Now, I 
tell you, as a pastor, the heartache I've seen in dealing with couples. Usually, uh, usually a wife comes to me, and she's heartbroken. Her marriage is falling apart, and you know she married an old pagan, and she was she knew it was wrong, but she was convinced in the long run she was going to change him, and it didn't work out so well for her. So I've. Sure. Yeah. That and that's and that's going to play into what I'm going to say later. When God said in the Old Testament, "My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge." You know, some people just don't know. They've never been taught. They've never read. That they, they don't know. Yeah. I need to ask a question. Uh-huh. I'm confused about that. Okay. Is it possible? I mean, because it goes on down there, it says David loved, I mean, Solomon loved the Lord Uh and walked in the statutes of his father. Right. Is it possible that he met this woman and he just fell head over heels in love with her and converted her? Maybe so. Boy, it'd be great if that was the story. I mean, we're not told that. We're not told either way. I'm trying to justify something. You're trying to... At, at this point, though, sad to say. Yeah, the other 999. But I, I think what we would have, even though that would be a nice story if it happened that way, probably wasn't that way. What's being indicated here? This this was a, a marriage out of a political yeah, alliance. Yeah, it says affinity. Yeah. 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 Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a big difference between being in God's permissive will and being in His perfect will. Sure, sure. <clears throat> but it ought to, for us today in the church, that ought to be the first block that's checked right off the bat. Is this person a believer? If they're not, stop, put on the brakes, slow down. You know, maybe you will be able to win them to the Lord. But I wouldn't say I do until that's happened. Because again, too many heartbreaks. I was just going to say about um, the uh, Egyptian um, Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, Egypt had over 3,000 idols. And none of them were God. Right. So, I mean, the likelihood that she would grow up in that kind of environment and... I mean, we know that his wives were his downfall. That's what pulled him away from exactly. serving God. So, yeah. sorry, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> Are we ganging up on you, Kathy? Yeah. <laughs> now, why was God giving instructions like this? Is it to be mean? No, it's to protect his people. Trying to protect them individually and as a family unit, but also as a nation because he knew that foreign wives would introduce foreign gods, idols. So, you know, I'm not sure how Solomon could be so foolish. He has been referred to as the wisest 
fool who ever lives. And that's probably a pretty good description. Now in verse 1, we see Solomon trying to do the good of consolidating the empire. Uh, he's never said to have gone to war. His job was to turn a territory, the territory that his father gained, into a unified nation. And you know, a nation needs a capital. And so he's fortifying Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, gonna, uh, is going to become the religious and political center of the nation. All of that happened under Solomon. In verses 2 to 3, we see the people in Solomon doing right. They're worshiping God, but they're doing so in the wrong way, in the wrong places. They're going to the hilltops, the altars on the hilltops that they inherited from the Canaanites. The Canaanites erected altars up there to try to get closer to Baal, the storm god. They thought he rode on the clouds and was responsible for bringing the rains and bring the fertility. Well, Israel sort of took over those pagan altars and, and sort of baptized those pagan altars. <clears throat> Sounded good on the surface, but still it wasn't right. In the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, God had told them not to use pagan altars. Folks, isn't it amazing the sin people involve themselves in when they don't, when they either don't know the Word of God or they don't heed the Word of God? Just as Shirley was talking about a moment ago. God said in the Old Testament, my people are destroyed for a lack. Don't we see that today? Folks, people just don't know the Bible. It's, it's rare to find somebody who really knows the Scripture. And you, you wonder of the decisions in life, some of the things they're doing that if they just knew the Scripture, they'd probably say, wait a minute, it's not God's will that I do something like that. <coughs> Yet, in the midst of all this, uh, there's the side note here that Solomon loved the Lord as David did. So again, what do you see here? You see this double-sided nature of Solomon, right? Are you double-minded in any way? Are we double-minded in any way? <clears throat> kind of convicting to think about it, isn't it? You what? Yeah, yeah. He sort of followed in the footsteps of his dad, didn't he? In that regard. Multiple wives. You know, I think we would have to admit probably all of us have a little too much of Solomon in us. Now again, to Solomon's credit, uh, he's going to correct some things. And verse 2 says that as of yet, there's no what? There's no house of the Lord. Now, hang on to that thought because not many chapters from now, what are we going to see Solomon begin to do? Build a temple. And the hope would be that that would be a central place of worship. It would cut down on the need for all the altars on the high places that could too easily 
devolve into syncretistic practices. So the temple would kind of unify the worship and the sacrifice of the nation back, back to a, a, a single place, hopefully, and do away with all these high places. But verse 4 shows us Solomon going to one of the prominent high places at Gideon. So here he is. He's going to build a house for the Lord. Here he is going to one of these high places. Again, just some... Solomon's sort of... Uh, who was it? John Bunyan had a character in Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's sort of how Solomon is. Mr. Facing Both Ways could be his nickname, maybe. Well, secondly, I want you to see God's invitation with an impressive response. God's invitation with an impressive response, beginning there in verse 5, going all the way down through verse 15. Uh, while at Gibeon, God gave Solomon an invitation. God spoke to Solomon in a dream. You know, in the Old Testament, God sometimes spoke to his people in dreams and visions. They didn't have copies of the scripture the way we do. Scrolls, scrolls of the Old Testament scriptures were, even when they had more of the Old Testament, scrolls were few and far between. Uh, and so oftentimes in the Old Testament, God would speak through things like dreams and visions in addition to, to prophets. Folks, that's not how God speaks to people today, generally. Beware of those who run around claiming, you know, oh, you know, I was having lunch yesterday and God spoke to me. And they just sort of flippantly, flippantly say, God spoke to me, God. You know, I was driving down the road, God spoke to me. said this, blah, 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 blah. Then I went home, God spoke to me. Beware of stuff like that. God speaks to us through His Son, the living Word, and through the Bible, His written Word. That's how God speaks to His people. But again, at this period of time, God often did speak through dreams. And that's what Solomon is experiencing here. And in this dream, God gives him an invitation uh, what would you ask for? You know, that reveals a lot about a person, right? What are you, you going to ask for? God says ask. Verses 6 to 9 reveals, I think, one of the best things you could ever read about Solomon. Solomon admits he's inherited the kingdom because of God's covenant faithfulness to his father David. And Solomon admits that this job is too big for him. He says that he's but a child. Believe Solomon was probably no more than about age 20 here. And there's a real humility in it here. Recognition, I'm but a child. I can't do this job is too much. In this nation, God, you've made this nation become a, a great nation, a great people. You remember when David numbered Israel in 2 Samuel 24, there were 800,000 men of fighting age in Israel. 500,000 men of fighting age in, in, in Judah. So we have 1.3 million men of fighting age, not including the women and the children, probably four, six, seven, eight million people. Cons that's a conservative estimate. 
You know, as of 2019, the Charlotte area, well, Mecklenburg County had 1.11 million people. So take about four or five Charlottes in population, four or five Mecklenburg counties in population. And think of a 20-year-old 20, 20 young man being in charge of all that. It's a huge task. So Solomon acknowledges here his own inadequacies and the fact that these are God's people. So if God's people are going to be led God's way, then God's servants have to have God's direction. He wants a discerning heart, a heart to know God's will and, and directions for God's people. He's acknowledging that God is the true source of wisdom. True wisdom comes from above. And that's what he desires God to give him. If God's going to give him anything, that's what he wants. So we're impressed at this point with Solomon, right? I mean, he's definitely desiring the right thing. And he's asking for the right thing. And you know, folks, the Bible tells us as Christians, when we ask for the right thing, things according to the will of God, we can have confidence that we have those things that we ask. Write down 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. He talks about that. 1 John chapter 5, 14 to 15. says, this is the confidence that we have. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we have those things that we've asked. 1 John 5, 14 to 15. We have a confidence in prayer when we're asking God for things according to His will. James 4 says that's one of the reasons why more people don't experience answered prayer because when they pray, they're praying for selfish things, carnal things, greedy things. And so God's not answering prayers like that. We don't have any confidence. We don't have any assurance. We shouldn't have any expectation that God is going to answer one of our prayers that is asking for something that's outside of His will. That's against God's nature and character. He's not going to do it. We're to ask for things that are according to the will of God and that can bring God glory. And that's what Solomon's doing here. And what's, what's verse 10 say? God was pleased by it. You say, Solomon, I'm going to give you what you asked for. You didn't ask for wealth and honor. But you know what? Because you've asked for the right thing, I'm going to give you those things and a long life as a bonus. Now, because of disobedience, Solomon's going to end up dying before he reached 70 years of age. Well, the third thing I want you to see is a case study revealing wisdom, revealing wisdom and building assurance in Solomon's leadership. The case study revealing wisdom and building assurance in Solomon's leadership, verses 16 to 28. It was customary in the ancient Near East for, for any citizen to have access to the king 
as the court of final appeal. In, in Israel, anybody could forego lower courts and go directly to the king. That's one thing they could do in ancient Israel. So that's what these ladies here are doing. Now, they're prostitutes and they were one of the most disrespected elements of Hebrew society. And typically they were the type of people that even if they deserved justice over a matter, they couldn't find justice because of who they were. But here we see that at the start of Solomon's reign, even they receive a fair hearing. Now, the facts of this case are not in dispute. They both have had a baby, and one of the babies is dead. The question was that both women were claiming that the live child was hers. It's a case of she said versus she said. Uh, so obviously one of them's a liar. But you know, Solomon wasn't there. How does he know? You know, today we have DNA tests and stuff like that. Boy, you could find out quickly, right? He didn't have any of that. Didn't have any of today's technology. In a stroke of genius, again, wisdom and discernment from the Lord, revealing that God had given him wisdom, answered his prayer for wisdom, he, he plays to their maternal instincts. He comes up with a solution that he knows the real mother won't stand for. She'll give up her child, her son, before seeing him slaughtered. And that's exactly how it plays out. And notice the response from everybody. When they learn of this, what's their response? They're impressed. They're in awe. And they recognize that God has blessed their new king with wisdom for leadership. So God answers Solomon's humble prayer. Pray for something according to God's will. A case study comes up that tries him in that very issue. God gives him wisdom to solve it in an incredible way. And everybody sees it and glorifies God. They stand in awe of God and they're impressed with Solomon, their new king. Good start, right? At this point, good start. That's why I've titled tonight what I have. A good start. Now, some lessons. We are to guard our heart. We are to guard our heart. You know, the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitful. Who can trust it? We're to guard our heart. Why is that so important? Well, the Bible says that the issues of our life flow out of our heart. Jesus talked about that in Mark chapter 7, didn't he? How everything, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything, your motives, your words, all that is a reflection of what's in your heart. 
So we need to guard our hearts. And the best way to do that is saturate your heart and mind daily in the Word of God and pray for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. A second lesson, we need to be on guard against trusting in God and trusting in the world. You can't have it both ways. If you find yourself trusting in God and trusting in the world, one of those needs to be erased out. And I trust you make the right choice. Erase out trusting in the world. Trust in God. A third lesson. Partial obedience is what? Disobedience. You know, Solomon and the people, they should have torn down those pagan altars. Instead of trying to baptize them and use them, they should have torn them down. Um, so what? I know, I know. Uh, Solomon did so much that was right. Uh, but you know... <clears throat> Time and again we see exceptions, don't we? Things that tainted his life and his reign. I wonder if you have areas of your life where God would say of you, well, he or she follows me except... He follows me except when in this situation... We need to subtract out those exceptions in our life, don't we? Deal with the accept areas of your life. If God were to say, she follows me, except when? Subtract those accepts out of your life. A fourth lesson, our prayer life needs to glorify God and His purposes and not simply be a session of greedy requests to meet our own agendas. And so, you know, you need to examine your prayer life. Does, does your prayer life match up with what the Scripture teaches is the will of God? Think of your prayer life. Think of your request. How does it match up with the will of God as revealed on the pages of Scripture? If you say, my prayers never seem to get answered, you know, that might be a problem. And then our last lesson, God is able to do more than we would ever ask or think when we honor Him. Ephesians 3.20, He's able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could even ask or think. Well, I wish with Solomon's life we could kind of stop right here. We'd stop right here. We'd say overall, though, though he had some of those exceptions in his life, pretty good round. Good start. Point two, God's invitation with an impressive response. God's invitation with an impressive response. Or did you mean the lesson number two? Okay. Okay, anything else? Back to Pharaoh's daughter. <laughs> Back to Pharaoh's daughter. Well, at the time, you know, we were having our 3,000 gods and stuff, it was one thing, but 
We know that after the Exodus, the story spread abroad. It tells me remember they came to the promised land. They knew about earth. Right. So, I mean, right. we don't know what that impact of that testimony sure. had on the entire world for that sure. Because Egypt at that time was the so you're trying to help Kathy make a good Christian, good Christian lady out of Pharaoh's wife here. I'm mean, Pharaoh's daughter. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I, what's being what all of that aside, what's being implied here? This was a marriage of political expediency, and we're not nothing else is really told beyond that. I work with uh, Abdul. Uh, he says his religion teaches he can marry as many women as he wants, as he wants, as long as he could afford it. <laughs> so we look at if he would read this, he said, "Well, Solomon, richest man in the world, there's nothing wrong with thousand wives." <laughs> but uh, this is going on today, though. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it even goes on in American Mormon circles and, and places right. and in Utah and so forth. Yeah, you could use that. Yeah. 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 I wanted to see my man Solomon one more time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in Solomon. Because um, I really believe that Solomon wrote the song of Solomon about this Egyptian woman. Because I believe he really, really loved her. But nevertheless, you're right. It probably started as that, and I think it's right true. Do you really love her or one of the other 999? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But when you go to Chronicles, because I've been reading that kind of parallel to Kings, when you go to Chronicles and you read about this incident, mm -hmm. it says that the tabernacle was at Gibeon. Remember, the, the shell was there. Of sure. course, the ark was not because David had tried to move it and it ended up at somebody's house somewhere. But the building itself, the ark, not the building, the tent. The tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. And Chronicles states that in the first chapter, mm -hmm. in the second part. So to defend Solomon a little bit, and the people, they were used to going to the tabernacle. They just failed to remember that God wasn't there anymore. He was down here. You know, but mm. That's one reason they were going to give you a steal, because mm. of that old tradition of going to the Ark of the Meeting. The Ark of the Yeah, the Tabernacle of the Meeting. Still trying to defend Guys, could you can you imagine the honeydew list you would get from, from a thousand wives? I mean, how would he ever have any time to be the king? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. For sure. Yep. Uh huh. To your knowledge, um, were is there ever a reference in the Bible to your knowledge of the high places being referred to as anything other than pagan places of worship? Mm -hmm. 
No. Because I think that's significant. Yes, Gibeah was the worship center, right. but Solomon went to the high place. It doesn't say he went to the tabernacle. Right. Yeah, I, I, not a single one comes to mind when it was a positive thing going to the high places. Yeah, I'm surprised too that Josiah, who was even younger than him, mm -hmm. moved a lot of those high places. Oh, yeah. Yep. And we'll see that through the study of kings. Josiah, a good, a godly king, he removed those places. And then found a copy of Deuteronomy uh, in the temple and had a revival of the word in the land. And remember last week you told us one of our lessons was that we need to destroy and get rid of anything that would threaten who's on the throne. Yep. You know, like Joab and Shimei and all. Yep. Those high places were exactly that. Yep. <clears throat> mm -hmm. What was number one? No, uh, point, uh, the number one lesson or number one main point? The main point. The main point, a double-minded king. Today in, our, in different nations, including ours, you know, we kind of like put this away. And we're not doing. We're, we can relate very much of the church to this. What this is saying. You know? Politics hadn't changed that much. Kind of as he was pointing out. Yeah.